Somehow from there, we had dinner in January of 2004 in one of the dorm dining halls. And it just felt like that actually was this sort of weird and pretty immediate breakthrough where went to a level of emotional vulnerability and sharing that is not typical of first dinners that you have with friends in college dining halls. That was sort of like something from nothing very quickly. Welcome to Model Minority Moms, where we talk about the meaning of success in career, family, and life. We are Jeanette Park, Kate Wong, and Susan Liu, Harvard classmates and Asian American working moms who get real about the pressures of fitting in while standing out. Hey, what's up? It's another episode of Model Minority Moms. Back by popular demand, our listeners are wondering, who are these women married to? And I want to meet these people. And so today we are so excited to have Jeanette's husband here, Jake. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm honored. Well, you are also our number one fan too. Have you made t-shirts, buttons? Like tell us about how you became the number one fan. Well, I listen to every episode and then I hype it on every opportunity I have mostly with coworkers one-on-one. So small top of the funnel that converts very well. I'm, it does. It does. I mean, it's so awesome that you're listening. I had to kind of like pull Marvin's teeth to listen. Like why, why were you so interested in what we were doing? I mean, it's always really interesting to hear folks that, you know, kind of step back and talk about their lives. And then especially when one of them's your partner, I, I resonate with things that you guys are tackling and struggling with, uh, even if my experience isn't fully the same. So I feel like I would listen, even if I weren't married to one of the hosts or friends with the other two, but I don't have the counterfactual. All a good answer. Okay. So we always start our husband podcast with just really trying to understand the background of your upbringing and how you perceived your upbringing, because so much of our parenting lens is clouded by our upbringing. So could you share in your own words, like what was growing up in Pittsburgh like? Yeah, well, that's the first thing is I I grew up in Pittsburgh, which is really a pretty idyllic place to grow up, sort of the feeling of a small town with some of the benefits of a city. And we lived in a kind of middle-class neighborhood, lots of trees, we're outside a lot. And uh, my parents were really loving. I'm the eldest of three. My parents had me a little later in life into their 30s. And we moved to Pittsburgh right after I was born. And then I have two sisters, one of whom's two years younger and one of whom's nine years younger and and grew up spending a lot of time with them. Yeah, I've been fascinated by your childhood because out of our very scientific assessment of all of us, we think out of all the three couples, you're the only one that's securely attached to their parents. Would you agree with that assessment? You're like the unicorn. Oh yeah. Jake. Yeah. I do. I do think I'm securely attached from what I understand of attachment theory and I'm not as deep as any of you. And yeah, it's a really great gift. Like what more could you ask for from your parents? And my parents have their strengths and weaknesses, but that was something really wonderful that they gave, I think, to me and my sisters. Did you go through any angsty phases growing up? You know, like either teenage rebellion or had, you know, any conflict with your parents? Honestly, not really. What? <laughs> what? I know. You, you were saying that you maybe didn't want to go to college. I wasn't completely sure that I wanted to go to college. But well, so stepping back a little, a little further, my parents, they created an environment that was easy to thrive in. And they had put very little pressure on me. And as far as I observed it, very little pressure on my sisters to 
achieve certain things or behave in certain ways. Wait, but but then you said you didn't want to go to maybe not go to college. I mean, but even that was kind of temporary, and they were still pretty low key about it. And I did end up going to Harvard, so maybe their like jujitsu laissez faire moves worked in the end. Yeah, it was a pretty supportive environment, and not a lot of pressure, not a lot of expectation to achieve certain things. We were like corrected when we behaved in a way that was unkind or unloving to each other or to other people. So it's not like it was just sort of free range, free form, hands off parenting. But yeah, they, it didn't really feel like they had specific expectations of me beyond that I'd be a kind person and that I'd try my best at the things that I'm doing. And so in that environment, I think you're given the opportunity to cultivate some intrinsic motivation to try a lot of things, to not be particularly afraid of failure. And I didn't really have a rebellious face. I don't know that that's a feature of all folks who have secure attachments to their parents. Probably more differentiation could help you strengthen the attachment or demonstrate the security of the attachment. But I didn't really feel like I had anything that I needed to rebel against. And I mostly liked my parents and shifted to interacting with them, maybe more like a peer in sometime in my teenage years. Like, did you call them by their first name? I do not. I've always admired those kids. I'm like, excuse me, Jane, I need new underwear. Okay, let's walk me through a correction conversation here. Like, would your mom just sit down on her knee and be like, hey, kiddo, what's going on? And like, there's like a cookie and a glass of milk. And like, you're both like cheersing with the milk. And like, there's like a rubbing of the back. I'm like, so intrigued what a corrective conversation for a securely attached adult looks like or at, at the time of kid. I wish I could bring you into it in like more detail with more realism. The fact of it is maybe because I don't have a good memory about a lot of things or because it happened rather infrequently, I just don't actually remember having conversations with my parents in which they were correcting my behavior very often at all. And it would be more in the kind of age that Isaiah is now, like don't take your sister's doll as opposed to anything I remember from being a teenager, like don't break the speed limit or don't do something a little riskier. I just was kind of a pretty down the middle, friendly teenager who didn't need a lot of correcting. I don't know that the experiences that I had were direct attributable to parenting moves that they were making, as opposed to I was a fairly chill kid with a bit of a people pleasing streak. And here were two people in front of me that I wanted to police and we could kind of get along pretty well accommodating each other. You said that you grew up in a middle class neighborhood. Did that mean you guys were middle class or tell us a little bit about the background of your parents, like what kind of jobs they had? Did they work? Yeah, these are typical middle, upper middle class, white American, Midwestern experiences, and therefore maybe a little dull, though it seems like curious to, to you, at least as you're asking the questions. For me, like I'm like, ooh, if I'm upper middle class, maybe like these great things will happen too. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. It's, my dad's family is kind of more, I'd say, upper middle class sort of a lineage of college professors and Presbyterian pastors, mostly college educated and pretty secure. And then on my mom's side, which I am less familiar with, but in general, I'd say lower middle class to sort of working class, a little more at the fringe of kind of economic security. And her family moved around a lot. And for us then, 
implications of this are we moved to Pittsburgh in 1984, lived in the house that we owned. It wasn't extravagant, but it also was very comfortable. And you didn't really worry about where your next meal was going to come from or whether or not you could you know, get a coat in the winter. And I'd say my mom in particular, maybe as a legacy of her family history, was still quite thrifty. And I appreciated that. And she was conscientious, I would say, to cultivate the thriftiness in us. So I'll share these anecdotes with Jeanette about going to Goodwill to buy our clothes. And she's like, well, your dad's a college professor. Like, why were you shopping at Goodwill? And, and I don't know if that was my mom's kind of preferred place or this was just her way of kind of inculcating these habits in her children. But that's a little bit of the kind of economic experience of it. I want to understand high school senior Jake, where it's like, I don't know, maybe I won't go to college. Mm, I got in a Harvard, maybe I'll go. Like, can you walk me through what's going on in your mind there? I think at that point, in my years prior to that, sophomore or junior year, just seemed like going to college was a little predictable, maybe not that fun. I found myself kind of challenged by reading long books and writing long papers and wanted to maybe be out in the world a little more, have a sort of what I perceived as like less cushy, less comfortable lived experience. I can't remember if I've shared this with the two of you. My solution to this eventually was that I took a year between high school and college and that year was very helpful to me and I felt like I grew and learned, but it wasn't like a wild abandonment of the predictable, say, middle-class path I was on. What'd you do during your gap year? I always admired gap year kids. I was like, always like, oh, that sounds brilliant. Well, just to say, I think even a gap year is itself like a form of privilege. But in my case, I moved to Japan. I'd gone to a mediocre high school and we were supposed to learn Japanese and we were in this international baccalaureate program. And then sophomore, junior year, I think I was kind of like, oh shit, I don't actually know Japanese and I have to pass this international baccalaureate test. So I sort of clutched together this summer between my junior and senior year, met some folks at a church who were starting a school. They said, do you want to come teach English? And I said, no, I have to go back to high school, but maybe I could come back next year. And so I kind of organized it that I would raised money from my church, didn't have a real visa. I had to like hop back and forth to Korea and Thailand to renew my tourist visa and taught English conversation to a set of elementary school students who I can't say learned a lot because I didn't really know that much about teaching and I was 18, but I did my best. Sorry, I'm, I'm burning with questions that I've been dying. Oh, okay, to ask. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, about Jake in college, because I've been dying to ask this of him for like months, literally. Okay. Oh my so, God. So Jeanette, whenever she talks about how you guys met in college, it's always like basically playing herself down. Like she, she like was like, oh, you know, I saw this like bum like looking person in Annenberg <laughs> and he kept trying to bug me. And I was like, you know, I didn't want to, I was like very focused on my thing. And then she was like, I gave and then, you know, basically you wore her down. And then apparently for your first like Valentine's Day, she gave you like the history of bombing. So basically Jeanette's like very down on herself. She's like the weird person and somehow like, I wouldn't characterize her as down on herself. I was like, she was more like, Fool, I got some straight A's to make. No, no, all right? she made herself sound like she was like this cranky person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. like, dude, there's a reason why Jake was like very persistent about pursuing you. And I, I'm dying to know, can you tell us what was going on inside your head of like an 18 year, 19 year old, I guess, since you took it, you know, a year off. Because because also, and the other reason I'm really curious, sorry, maybe it's a kind of a related and you might expound upon it, is that I feel like your behavior at the time of pursuing her was 
was so mature. And I think Susan, I think you made some comment about this. Like you behave like, I don't know, a 40 year old established man. She's just got these tendencies. It's okay. I can see through it. However you want, walk us through what was going on in 19 year old Jake's head. Yeah. Or did you like actually saw her? Yeah. Or did you like watch a lot of rom-coms and study the techniques and be like, oh, that's all I have to do. Got it. Like great questions. Uh, Well, first as pretext, we had very similar haircuts at the time. So I had declined to get my hair cut for the year that I was in Japan, but my hair's not quite straight. So it sort of waffles into like a mushroom. And then Jeanette, against any reasonable advice, had consented to a perm just before starting and, and college. And a short haircut, like a short haircut plus a perm at the same time. Oh my God. Can we trade photos, Jeanette? Because I also cut my hair and permed it before freshman year. And it was like the worst decision ever. We'll stop. Oh my it. God. It was terrible. Destroyed. I don't think there's any evidence left. It's only. Oh, really? I think I have one. I'll find one and send it to you. It was terrible. I also tried to destroy most of the evidence. Yeah. And then I spend like the rest of college just like growing out my hair really long. I'm like, I'm never going to get a short again. Anyway, so we had the same haircut. I'm pretty sure that's what attracted you to me. I don't know if it was that, but well, I don't quite remember it in the way that you narrated Jeanette's narration. So to me, in terms of kind of the early launch of our relationship, we were sort of aware of each other, hadn't interacted all that much. And then Jeanette was hosting a screening of a documentary and I couldn't make it, but I'd seen the email and I replied to thank her for hosting it and see if I might see it another time. And then somehow- One on one. (laughs) I suppose. I've never actually seen this documentary now. (laughs) 16 years later, hopefully it's good. I'm sure it is. And somehow from there ended up that we had dinner in January of 2004, just in one of the dorm dining halls. And it just felt like that actually was this sort of weird and pretty immediate breakthrough where went to like a level of emotional vulnerability and sharing that is not typical of first dinners that you have with documentary screening friends in college dining halls. That was sort of like something from nothing very quickly. And then the second point of escalation was at that time, and and in retrospect, this was truly horrible, but the finals, you may remember, were in late January. And then there was a break between the finals and the next semester. And during that break, the student-run homeless shelter was always like vastly short-staffed. And so we decided to sign up for a couple of shifts. And then it's just you and the other volunteers and some of the clients overnight in the shelter. And so you just have a lot of opportunity for conversation and that's kind of escalated pretty quickly. But I think what you're referencing is thereafter for the next two or three years. Jeanette's side in particular, there's just a lot of reluctance to commit, I'd say some kind of ready triggers that I had to sort of discern as to where they were. I wasn't totally sure why they were so triggering. And so there was a level of persistence in kind of sticking to it to feel like there was something there. This was worth leaning into. I'm not exactly sure why this person is behaving this way, but let me kind of stick with it. And I thought you might ask me the question of like, what was so motivating? And so I was thinking about a little bit ahead of time. I did feel like there was a real connection in that in the moments of de-escalated kind of non-traumatic behaviors, there's a lot to build off of a lot in the relationship that I was excited about. I also felt like I was growing a lot, that this was leading me to a new kind of place of emotional depth and maturity. There's a lot to be thankful for in my childhood. I didn't really feel like I came out of it, though, with great kind of conflict skills. We were a little reserved, conflict avoidant, and this was benefiting me. 
and that this was a person whom I loved and I was connected and, and committed to. And I wasn't totally sure that it would work out. Some of her actions made it difficult that it would work out or uncertain, but it didn't feel like at the time that I was doing anything like heroic or especially mature like a 40-year-old would when he's 19. You get a present, which was the history of bombing. Can you can you walk me through you open the book here? Was this was this like was it in wrapping paper? Was it in a gift bag? Like you you see the title and your reaction. This is Valentine's Day, right? You see the title and then you think I did think this isn't what I would have put in the category of a typical Valentine's Day gift. Mm. I like chocolate. I also like other candy, like flowers or cards. But I think part of what was intriguing about Jeanette was that she had an intellectual life. She was interested in ideas, had read a lot more than I had, and was sort of operating in the in the world of ideas, unless in the way that some of us were, and at least I was, which was I knew what it took to get okay grades, and I would read things and be conversant in that way. Felt like she was more intrinsically motivated reading on her own. And I knew that this book was important to her, had been a part of a really amazing class that she had taken in high school. So some intrigue there and also amusement that this would be the Valentine's gift she would choose for her budding relationship. And maybe it was also one of her like thwarting tactics to kind of dissuade me. I couldn't totally tell, but I still have it. I actually have two copies. Two. And I'm very thankful for it. Wow. You know, what I was thinking, Jake, as you're talking about your childhood, and then also your courtship with Jeanette is, you know, it actually kind of makes sense to me why it would have worked out because I think unlike the three of us, because you grew up in an emotionally stable, socioeconomically stable environment, you didn't have very many triggers, right? And also, like you said, you mentioned in your family, you know, it, it, you didn't have much conflict. And so in a way, I feel like maybe that made sense. My, I jokingly described you as like 40-year-old behavior, but maybe it was less 40-year-old behavior and just more someone who is very attached behavior, right? That you, even though Jeanette had all these triggers, but they didn't trigger you because you had a really solid, loving experience growing up, right? Yeah. So that actually is, is interesting. It makes a lot of sense to me now why you wouldn't necessarily have been, you know, triggered in the same way that, you know, if I were you, or if I were in your shoes, you know, that I would have gotten triggered. Yeah. I, I think that's a good observation. I did feel, even at the time, I remember feeling like this level of stability and one of the gifts I might offer Jeanette is that stability even in the midst of kind of turbulence. I did have a habit though, and this is a little bit of the growth that I was interested in, but was also hard. I did have a habit of shutting down some, like, I don't understand. I can't quite engage with you when you're this way. I do want to be like loving and understanding, but I'm also a little bit confused and I shut down or sort of can't engage exactly. So it's not that I was like completely skilled in navigating these situations, but it wasn't triggering in the sense that I would then escalate. Like my triggers are leading me to de-escalate and maybe that doesn't even fit the definition of a trigger. And I think it is, you're right, quite helpful in conflict if one person happens to be feeling triggered that the other person not also kind of trigger and things blow up. Jeanette, what was going on in your mind? Was this like, Jake, I want you to demonstrate the Korean no. Like I'm going to say no to you three times. And then if you keep insisting, okay, I guess we'll get married. <laughs> 
No, I think maybe later on in our relationship, there was a bit of that. But I think in the beginning, it was like a sincere, I don't want to be in this serious relationship. Because, you know, like my family has a history of really bad relationships between men and women. And I think when Jake and I became involved, there was all that like kind of negative feeling just poured out. And it wasn't really even because of Jake. I just realized I actually kind of hated men. And unfortunately for Jake, like he kind of bore the brunt of that right just that like anger and I had this whole plan like I wasn't going to really be in a serious relationship until I was in my mid-20s and you know I was going to get an advanced degree and then I would get married and you know I had this whole thing and I was like this thing is way too serious right now like why you know it's not in my plan and so I think in the beginning it was sincerely like I was very conflicted because on one hand I felt very a lot of attraction but then I think on the other hand I was kind of like no I can't do this right now and I don't want to do this right now right so I was kind of running away but then later I think maybe a year into our relationship, it was maybe subconsciously, I wouldn't say I was doing this consciously, but I think subconsciously I was kind of pushing him because I think there's part of that trauma in my family is there's been a lot of betrayal. I think I would characterize it as like of men for their wives. And so I think my subconscious was a little bit like, I'm going to give you all my shit and let's see if you can take it. You know what I mean? Um, and a part of that was a little bit of like a test. And I think a part of it is just also, you know, if I'm going to be in a relationship, I want to be able to be totally real and like this is me being totally real which is not pretty are you going to be able to handle that right I think a lot of this was not very conscious it was just all coming out of this place that I didn't understand at the time and only now I feel like I have a little bit more of an understanding of why I was behaving the way I was yeah I mean let's be honest here you were in your 19 20 21 22 like before you got married like this is this you did not date a lot of other people you you two got into a very serious committed relationship during college. Yeah, Jake had a high school girlfriend and I wouldn't say like I had some like interest in high school, but like not, you know, no, I wouldn't call any of them real relationships. Basically like my first real boyfriend. And, you know, I thought I would have a few casual boyfriends like before it was something really serious. And it got really serious. Like Jake mentioned, it kind of went from zero to 60 very quickly. And so I was kind of freaked out by that. Talk to me about getting married. Was it the day after graduation? Tell me about like who proposed to who? Was it a mutual thing? Was there some kind of... What was going on? Well, in retrospect, like 22, 23 is a very young age at which to get married. And the data is not great on the success rate of, of those marriages for reasons that make sense in kind of the broader scheme. And on the flip side, it's worked out for us. And I think we feel really lucky because we got to kind of grow up together. I did think about that at the time. And I think Janana even talked about it, which is we feel like we're over the threshold by we can grow up together and kind of mature together as opposed to our kind of mutual insecurities undermining each other and it kind of going south over the one's 20s. So in that way, it feels like we kind of got lucky and we were right as to that threshold, if that's real. And now we have this fun experience of being in our late 30s, having started dating when we were 19 and our anniversaries being very high numbers for our age. We had been dating for three years. In college. Yeah. And seeing each other every day. It's like at least double, right? Normal dating life. Yeah. Yeah. You clocked in a lot of time. Yeah. So... I don't totally remember. I think we just started talking about it maybe in 2006 sometime over the summer. And then I proposed, but it wasn't a surprise. We had talked about it before. You had discussed it? Yeah. 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 Did you get proposed to without a discussion as to whether you wanted to get married? There's like two types of proposals. One, or maybe three. Okay. 
one where you like discuss it. You're like, where's this going? Okay. We're going to what restaurant? I'm going to go get a manicure. I'm going to be all shocked. You're going to hire a photographer. It's going to be great. You know, like that's like a, a planned proposal. I think another one is like, all right, it's getting pretty serious. My eggs are getting pretty old. Are we on track? Okay, cool. I'm going to tell my girlfriend what kind of ring I want. And I'm just going to start twiddling my thumbs in a very like heteronormative kind of proposal situation. And then the third one is just like comes out of nowhere and you're like, oh, I don't even know if I want to stay with you. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to avoid the third. I think Jeanette would have too. I think we had talked about getting yeah. married. I was trying for it to be a surprise that I was proposing on that day, but not of a surprise that I would propose At in all. general. Yeah. And my specific scheme, which was, it ended up not being fully surprising, but I think I said, my, my grandmother had given us maybe her mother's ring and Jeanette knew that I had that, she had seen it. And then I think I said it was being resized in the shop. The thing that outed me though was, I'm not a very planful person. Turns out that I have ADD. My plans are not that well organized, but Jeanette found me like weirdly well organized day of, and I had printed out my map quest and rented a zip car and we were going to an orchard. And I don't know that she was fully surprised started to suspect this seems like Jake has put more thought into this than anything he's previously planned for us. So maybe outed myself, but hopefully a bit of a surprise the day of without it being a surprise that we might get engaged that fall. But but why get married when you're around 22? Like why not just be together? I mean, like what was the urgency, I guess, like a month after graduation? I mean, like you guys didn't even start working yet. No, we spent the summer hanging out and in like a loose series of honeymoons or honeymoon-like trips and then started working together at the same job, living in the same house with five colleagues in the following fall. Yeah, it's a good question. I think in our case, it kind of felt like we were ready. Like we wanted to be together to us. Marriage was kind of the expression of that. We were in a thread of Protestantism in which that's more common, but totally respect the people who choose to have kind of committed partnership and get married later or not get married at all. Yeah, I think the, the so like that one question is why now? But then I think the other question is why not now? Like I felt like I knew that we were going to get married. So it's kind of like, why not now? Right. And I think in our minds, it already felt like we had that level of commitment. So it felt it felt like we were ready. Yeah. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and because I'm curious of, of the three of us, you know, Jeanette's obviously had the longest relationship slash marriage and you guys had Isaiah, you know, years after you got married. And I'm wondering how, you know, being together since you were basically 18, 19, then being parents or for you, Jake, being a father for the first time when you're in your early thirties, I mean, how did that change that dynamic that you and Jeanette had for so long, just the two, well, two of you plus Jeanette's mom later on, you know, I'm just really curious about that because I didn't have that. Mine was like the exact opposite was everything was like, do, 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 like very fast. Yeah. Just, can you give us a little insight? into it and then how you thought about fatherhood and how, were you worried that it would impact your relationship with Jeanette? Well, first, I mean, it was really fun to have your 20s with your partner kind of committed and to have that experiences of without the work of birthing and rearing children. So I'm really thankful for that. I guess, yeah, we got married in 2007. Isaiah was born in 2018. We had imagined having kids a little earlier than that, and then it took a while to have him. So didn't have any kind of like specific timeline around the 20s plus early 30s sort of fun time pre-children. On fatherhood overall, 
what a great gift. And I always actually knew that I would love being a dad. I really love kids. And I had kind of weirdly in fifth grade sought out Red Cross babysitting certification. I made posters of my babysitting services and I would put them around and pass them out. And I did babysit a lot. And then one thing that was fun was a few friends in Boston had kids five, six, seven years earlier than we had. And and in fact, for some of them, we were their godparents. So we're really engaged, maybe more than the average 20 something in the lives of children in our friends. And then for me before, as weirdly as a babysitter. I love kids. I was excited to be with them. I wasn't, of course, we knew that having kids would change our relationship and that we'd have less time for each other and that it would be a lot of work. This feels a little bit weird to say. Some folks would ask us like six months, 12 months in, how's parenthood? How did it compare to your expectations? And I think it's because two of the kids to whom we were the godparents had been more colicky, kind of more challenging babies. We had really low expectations. And Isaiah, to his credit, was a pretty easy baby. And so if anything, it was actually easier than we were expecting. And we had kind of braced ourselves for this this pain that didn't quite bear out. And we had Jeanette's mom living with us, as she still does. And she was quite helpful and had a lot of support. So I feel like coming to fatherhood was an incredible joy in line with what I had expected it to be. A lot of work, but less work maybe than what we had anticipated. And for our relationship, I think... I think it's helped it mature. With two kids, now we have less time for each other than we had had before. With one kid, that actually didn't feel like it changed. And in fact, maybe we even spent more time together because we would spend time walking him around Boston or taking him to different things. So I feel really lucky. I really love being a dad. I don't want more than two kids. This feels like we're at sort of the capacity that we have emotionally and physically in kind of our energy. I'm so lucky to have them and, and to have Jeanette as a partner in parenting. One cool thing that you two do is date day. Can you talk about how that evolved like as the solution of how to give attention to your relationship. Do yeah. you not do that? No, we, we do. I mean, it's not like a super formal thing, and I don't, I feel like we could do it more often, but we, we've kind of caught, gotten into this pattern, especially after our second was born, where we try to take at least one half a day, maybe a month to go have lunch together and then take a walk or something. And yeah, I think a lot of couples do that, right? I mean, I think it kind of came out of this feeling of we used to have a lot of that time and now we have none of that time. And personally, I was feeling a little bit depleted you know? And so I felt like I wanted that time. For example, Jake asked me for my birthday this past year, what would you like for your birthday? And I said, oh, like I want to have a day together, you know, because that seems really the most scarce resource for us right now is just time together. And so I think we just try to make time for that, but it is not easy. I think for most parents, it's just not easy to find childcare and then like find time away from work to do that. I'm really curious about the fact that Jeanette's mom lived with you too. And for me, the expectation expectation of filial piety of like, if my dad needs extra care, would he move in with me? It's a complete yes. Like I wouldn't even think about it. But my perception of white people is that they might not do that immediately or nursing homes are an option. Like in my family, I don't think we would even consider that. Like that's like a last resort option. I'm curious because Jeanette's mom came to live with you too when you were in your twenties. Jake, what was that like when the opportunity came in front of you. Like, what were you thinking? Was that kind of like a completely like, no, or is it like, well, I went to Japan and I understand filial piety and I see, and I'm going to respect it too. Like what was going through your mind there? Yeah, that was 2000 and 
10. So we were 26. I was 26. Jeanette was 25. And Jeanette's mom and her dad had gotten divorced. Her mom was having a tough time. And we decided that we wanted to move back to Boston so that Jeanette could explore grad school. And it just seemed like her mom was struggling and it would be helpful to her to have the stability of family and also a bit of a reset to kind of get out of LA where she'd been most of her adult life and to Boston as sort of a new place. We definitely talked about it and I was supportive because I wanted to help her. I'm not sure that we thought it would be permanent at the time though it could have been. The honest answer though, it's not really much tax on me. And Jeanette's the person who has the closer relationship with her, who you know navigates the dynamic more. And for me, it's more like, well, I might have to pay rent for a second bedroom, but also there's bibimbap for dinner and it's delightful. And this kitchen is really clean. And now I have a chihuahua who seems to not have a secure attachment. So the chihuahua came with my mom. Oh yeah. Important clarification. Yeah. It was oh, her, you don't was, you don't call Jeanette's mom Chihuahua. No, no, no. The, the Chihuahua is actually a lot more stress uh, than Jeanette's mom ever was to me. And he was fine. He's rest in peace. So I'm thankful for the opportunity to have lived with her. I feel like though we're not super close, we don't have a fully shared language. I'm appreciative of her. It's become particularly helpful in this time that we've had kids. With Ruth, for example, she did the bulk of the childcare until Ruth went to daycare. She's a doula, right? She was a she's a Korean doula. Right. She's a trained postpartum doula in a Korean tradition, has all these soaks and massages and things that she does to help moms and babies. So I'm thankful for her and also appreciative of Jeanette because Jeanette's the one who does the work, the relational work of having one's mother in one's home. Yeah, but it is it is made like much easier by the fact that I think both Jake and my mom are fairly accommodating of each other. Maybe this is not healthy, but it's easier for me to have, I guess, stress directed at me, even if it's about the other person. Like, you know, if my mom is stressed out about something that Jake is doing, it's easier for me to have her stress directed at me rather than directed at Jake, because I feel like at least it's more within my control to moderate. So they have very little direct conflict with each other. And I would say like, they don't have much conflict to begin with, right? But when there is, it's like, it mostly goes through me. That sounds hard. Yeah, it's not It's not always easy, but it's like made easier. But I, I could imagine a scenario though, where there is a lot more conflict between them, you know, then I, I feel like it could easily rise to the level of like not possible. Or like Jake could have been like, I don't like Korean food. Get this sundubu out of my face. Yeah. I The sundubu is a great delight. Korea's gift to the world. It's so good. So, you know, uh, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast. I guess all of our kids are mixed race, uh, but I think what's interesting is, you know, like for you and Jeanette, your children are half Asian, half white, and you're white. And then, but your kids, like, you know, they both look like they have not white blood in them, right? And so I guess as a dad, and then also as a, you know, like who doesn't ethnically share the same, you know, sort of like look as his children, how do you think about, you know, their identity growing up? Obviously they're going to have a very different experience from you for a lot of different reasons, but definitely from like how other people see them in terms of their racial identity, et cetera. We'd love to know about how you, the white dad, sorry, not to stereotype use white dad, but you know, like how, how you think about that and what your thoughts on or what, what you might do to kind of shepherd that process. I feel like I'm still early on it. I've had only the briefest of conversations with Isaiah about race and ethnicity, though interesting at, with a three and a half year old. I think 
my main worry is actually that I wouldn't be fully empathetic to their experience and that they be experiencing racism, for example, or sort of otherizing. I'd be less aware, less sort of sensitive, and that creates like a space between us. I mean, there's space between anyone and there's you know, often space between people who have different ethnic identities and therefore experience life in, in the U.S. differently on that basis. But I would imagine a sense on my children's part of my not understanding and kind of distance and a lack of empathy. So I'm eager to close that. I think in Seattle, as half East Asian, half white kids, that there actually is a fair amount of that experience and not that it's always the same, but if there were a kind of a hop up place to grow up, if not Hawaii, then maybe Seattle might be one where they at least feel like there's some set of kids that can identify with their experiences. And so I don't know that we would specifically prioritize staying in Seattle just on that narrow basis, but it is a bit of a comfort to know that they'll have other kids with at least parts of that identity and experience that they might be growing up with and then that they'd also have each other. But I feel like there's good work for me to do. I feel like I've learned a lot being married to Jeanette, Korean American, about what she's experiencing. And nevertheless, I am still blind to some of it. And I want to keep closing that gap both with her and with my kids. So that there's, you know, so far as that's a barrier to intimacy that we can uh, try to lower it. Do you ever feel like you want to instill Pittsburgh into them? Like Steelers, terrible towel. Like, is there a part of your heritage that you want to incorporate into their upbringing or preserve? I'm quite fond of Pittsburgh, but my parents didn't grow up there. And that kind of Pittsburgh identity, as you're describing it, I would say is a delightful, mostly working class phenomenon developed over several generations, often tied back to your great great grandparents who moved there from Poland to work in the steel mill. So even that, I don't feel like I can completely identify identify with, even though I have some familiarity with it. And so that in particular is not like a heritage that I feel like is mine to even give to them. I mean, this is maybe the privilege of whiteness in still like, if not a white majority, a kind of white dominant society. I don't feel the urgency to pass along certain traditions or identity or kind of culture to them. And maybe it's just that I'm less aware of the extent to which I have those. Maybe it's because I think they'll probably get it anyways, because they're growing up up in the U.S. I do have a sense of values that some of which are tied to culture, some of which are, you know, bridge many cultures, and I'm eager to inculcate values of them, but they're not so much specific kind of ethnic cultural identities. You, you don't say like, and now this is called a handy snack. You know. So I want to talk a little bit about your relationship. You know, you both started working at McKinsey out of college, right? And since then, Jeanette has been on an entrepreneurial kick, starting a few businesses, tinkering with a number of ideas. What has that been like for you? Because in, in the Marvin episode, we had talked about the fact that I wanted to become an artist. And he's like, okay, because we had to shift around that, especially after we bought a house, especially after we had a kid. So I'm curious about for you, like, what has that been like? Because you've had a, a relatively, I wouldn't say like a linear career, but it hasn't had the number of pivots that Jeanette has had. So can you talk to me a little bit about having a an entrepreneurial wife and now an entrepreneurial mom since you have two kids? Yeah. And you're on the road a lot too. Yeah. 
So starting from the beginning, there's been real benefit to me to having had Jeanette start her career doing pretty much exactly the same thing that I was doing. And in fact, not just starting her career, but seeing it through even beyond business school. We have a couple of folks that I still work with who know her from her tenure. And so when I talk about friends at work that I'm close with, she'll often have context on who that person is, and maybe they're even her friend too. The more useful thing is that she understands what it is and how it works. And at the time we were both working there, we'd say we had kind of mutually low expectations of each other on the basis of this understanding of what McKinsey was. I don't understand what that means. Do you mean? Oh, just in that it requires a fairly high level of commitment and flexibility. And if on Thursday night she bails on uh, dinner with me, I can't really be upset because I will have to bail the next Thursday night. So this isn't like an inspiring work-life balance story, but there's some value to that mutual understanding. I'm really excited about where she is landing entrepreneurially. I think it taps gifts and passions and interests that she hadn't had the chance to scratch kind of early in her career. And I want her to be successful. I think when she'd taken a crack at it previously, I'm trying to shift my own engagement with her as an entrepreneur. I think on a prior go around 2015 or so, I felt like I was kind of business advisor, husband, sounding board, temporary financier insofar as I was covering our mortgage and expenses well she set out on this. And there was some anxiety for me associated with all of that, some of which I think could have passed to her and wasn't helpful to her in her entrepreneurial pursuits. So I'm trying to kind of set up on my side a better set of conditions. I prefer not to be business advisor, at least the only business advisor in the mix, and to give her more time and space to kind of let creativity bubble and, and see where it goes without a lot of pressure to get to revenue or to raise money or whatever the kind of milestone and progress in entrepreneurship might be on any kind of aggressive timeline. I also I also wish 10 years ago that I encouraged her towards this sooner. It's so clearly something that that's stimulating and exciting and joyful to her. And I wonder if I could have been a little bit more concerted as her partner, seeing who she is and what gives her joy and what uh, doesn't give her joy and kind of nudging her towards this maybe sooner than she got there on her own. But overall, super excited. I think this is a really amazing time. And now my other concern is just because two kids is a lot. And at the moment, as she's kind of early in entrepreneurship, she'll almost always have more flexibility than I will. I just want to make sure we create the like container of space and mindshare and energy that actually allows her to do real work on this, as opposed to having like fragments of time between kind of home and childcare and, and kind of family tasks that don't really add up to enough to let your seeds kind of take root and, and really blossom. That's a great answer, Jake. If you have any single friends, you can let us know about them. You know, like maybe they're like-minded. I'm sure a lot of single women would be like, yes, preach, preach. Make space for Jeanette's ambitions. I'm curious for you, Jake, what will success look like for you? You'd be like, I was a good dad. Like I did a good job. What will your kids, how do you want them to turn out? Like what's your goal in how you raise them? Because before you were like, your parents just wanted you to be kind, which is like so great. Like I'm afraid, I want my kid to be kind, but I don't want him to be living in my basement when he's 40, you know? So like, tell me like, what's your metrics of your success? Like what's your KPIs for your kids? 
Well, I'd really love to hear what Jeanette thinks about this too. But I honestly, I think it's actually the same. Most of all, I want my children to be kind to each other and to others. I do have a value of doing your best. I don't want them to feel a lot of pressure to become a great pianist or snowboarder or academic, though if they find something that they love, I would want them to do their best at it. So I think there is a value around stewarding the opportunities given to you and around hard work, but mostly I want them to be confident that they're loved, that they don't have to earn love by doing certain things, and then to be able to extend that love to their their partners and their friends and, and their children, and that they be kind of kind, that they have a sense of responsibility to others and to the world. And I think if those things were true, there's other things you might want to have, but that would be at the core of it. What do you think, Jeanette? Yeah, I think it's pretty aligned. I think if I have a good relationship with them, then that's also like a marker of that I feel like I did an okay job. You know what I mean? Like if I still feel close to them and they feel close to me, I think that's one marker. And then I think, yeah, just kindness. I, I think for me, I would like emphasize responsibility a little bit more like responsibility for themselves. I don't need them to be on like Forbes 30 or under 30 or something. That's like not my metric. And you have to like nominate yourself. Let's be honest. Okay. <laughs> but responsibility, kindness, my quality of my relationship with them. And yeah. And I think the sense of, yeah, do your best, right? Don't just waste the opportunities that you've been given, right? And, and I also want them to have a sense of like doing what they are passionate about. So yeah, I think for me, they're largely aligned, I think. Jake, listening to our podcast, has there been anything that you've been shocked by or disagree with? No, I mean, I love listening to the podcast. As I said at, at the beginning, I think what is really helpful to me is hearing in more detail how you're experiencing motherhood, what is challenging, what burdens you might be bearing and Jeanette might be bearing in particular that aren't always fully transparent or I'm not always aware of. But no, nothing that I disagree with. It's more just like the opportunity for this lens into your thinking. Maybe it's an artifact of having relatively little time that we spend just talking to each other or a lot of that time being kind of at the end of the day and the end of our energy. And we just sort of like veg out and watch the crown. But I love hearing the sort of experiences that you're having. It makes me more empathetic. It makes me want to be a better partner to kind of take things off of Jeanette's plate, both the kind of mental burden and then the actual burden, but no wild disagreements. Is there something I should disagree with? <laughs> no, I was just wondering. And I mean, just, I know that 25% of our listeners are men. And I'm just curious, like, do you have any since you're married to a model minority mom, do you have any pieces of advice for other dads out there or soon thinking about becoming dads? I'm hesitant to give advice. I think one of the journeys that I'm on relative to a couple of the themes that we've discussed is even with good intentions as to the egalitarianness of our partnership, Jeanette still bears disproportionate burden. And some of it is a little inevitable. Like it was hard for me to sort of bear the burden of breastfeeding, for example. And then some of it features 
features of our personalities. She is just a more engaged, like aware and useful person than me, even before we had kids. And so I'm still just trying to kind of up my game. I liked one of the things that you said, even though it's sad for me, which is she is also just more skilled, better cook, is better at cleaning. And there's reasons, many of them not good, that I've ended up kind of like a B minus intern on several of these fronts. So the journey that I want to take is that I want to become aware of the kind of full plate, the full needs of our kids and our family, increase my skills, like contribution. It's also just hard. Like I don't have a lot of time to practice my cooking or cleaning outside of the live fire needs of that family. And then my attention, my awareness, my sensitivity is, you know, that sort of slow growth off a low base. But my encouragement to other dads would be, and to myself, so maybe it's ultimately sort of just advice back to myself is I can become discouraged as I realize how imbalanced the caregiving and, and the burden is. And there's a risk in that of just sort of like checking out. And I think that what I want to do is kind of check in. And even if it only moves marginally and slowly, you know, that's still progress. And that is what we're going to end on. Every episode, we do this segment called Inside Thoughts, which is a lightning round of questions. I'll ask a question, I'll say my answer, and then we'll just popcorn style our responses to it. Unless, Kate, was there anything else that you wanted to ask or? No, I think that's good. Cleared the test, Jake. Congratulations. Okay, since we're all Harvard grads, what is your one do-over that you would have with your Harvard experience? There are many do-overs that I have, but one major do-over is I would have not been a social studies concentrator because you had to write a thesis. I would have done psychology or comparative religion because those are way more interesting topics to me. But for some reason, I had to like really have my social justice warrior cred on my shoulders there. And the thesis was a very painful experience. So I would do that as an immediate do-over over many things. Susan and I were in the same major for your listeners. Which we call concentrations because we're like Harry Potter. And have to have a different vocabulary. Social studies, which yeah. sounds like we were studying Native American maps. History. Yeah. yeah. In fact, it was rather difficult. I actually really liked doing it and, and loved my thesis. It was really hard for me. I had it turns out like untreated ADHD and those books were really long. And so were those papers. Oh my God. And so long. Had to sort of flagellate my way through uh, paper after paper and was not a contributing member of my discussion section as a result. So I suppose the major do-over was I wish I had figured out that I had ADHD earlier and maybe I could have treated it and had a little less pain. I think the second was for whatever reason, even with the comforts and confidence of the childhood I described to you guys, I just felt like I was working a lot. Like if not on schoolwork, though, that was a lot of work, partly because I read really slowly and had trouble writing the papers. But all of these sort of student organizations, which seem to exist largely for the resume padding to their leadership and members. And I wish I'd just taken a little more time to invest in the relationships that I had or to develop new relationships. And I'm really thankful for some of the friends that I had coming out of that, including the three of you. But I also feel like I left a lot on the table relationally as a function of just being in a hurry all the time. Yeah, I think for me too, if I could go back and do it again, just to be more intentional about cultivating the relationships 
of the people that I had more ready access to in college, right? Because like after college, I, I didn't realize this in college, but afterwards, it's, it's actually just really hard to meet people and to make new friends. It's like, it's way harder. And, and in hindsight, I feel like people who were so interesting and, but like, yet we had enough in common where I would have kind of been able to have more of a friendship, but I just didn't spend enough time doing that. I and mean, I didn't prioritize it enough. I think I did my best given what I knew and like my situation, but knowing what I know now, you know, I probably would have spent my time a little differently. Yeah. I would, I, I like Susan would probably, have, I think I would have chosen a different concentration. Wait, weren't uh, you psychology? Yeah. But like, you know, originally I was actually East Asian studies. My dad like guilted me and was like, you're Chinese. Why are you studying? Why am I paying white people to teach you about China? Which is like, actually now he really super regrets that because he realized and he tells every, all the other Chinese parents, it like, doesn't matter what your kid studies at Harvard. Anyway, because I really loved like all my East Asian studies classes. I was really passionate about it. And actually what I would probably do is do like a special concentration of East Asian studies and romance languages. Mm. Yeah. That's what I would do. You know, just listen to my own. This is what I really like and what I'm interested in. I mean, psychology was fine, but like, I just also, it was like very large concentration. Didn't get a lot of individual attention, but the EAS department was just like, the profs were like, just really nice and paid you a lot of attention. And I like, I made up for it later in grad school. I took like one of the classes I'd always wanted to take, but I really kind of regret that. I didn't stand up to my dad, you know? Well, now that you say psychology was so not cool, I would have gone VES, visual environmental studies. Like they were the weirdest artsy people. I guess they were maybe in the signet. Like they were just like so weird. And like, maybe they grew up in Manhattan or something, you know? Like I was just like, wow. And then they would produce such cool creative work that I I thought was like so amazing. I, I wish I was, maybe I was more VES. That would have been cool. Yeah. Can you imagine like if we went back to college now or what if it was just totally normal for people to do another college like thing from the age 40 to 44, right? I mean, I feel like that would be kind of cool. I mean, it's totally impractical, but it would be grad grad school. (laughs) Yeah. It's just, it's just because I feel like I have so much more context for the things that I was learning in school. It's like, you know, it's like, it's just pouring all this knowledge into a vacuum and you just have no appreciation for it. Oh no. No, like in business school when you're like, oh, relationships matter. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) My other related thing is now in adult life, I don't really want to go back to grad school, but I want to make dorms for adults, including adults with kids. Like we could have even just a, a townhouse complex where each of us lives in a townhouse and then we take one of them and make it like the playhouse and we have a commercial kitchen, preferably with a kind of dining hall staff. This would be a good way to live. I think it's called communes. Um, You should talk to Nirav because he's all about it. He like really his secret wish is to get all like a bunch of good friends to like live in the same neighborhood and like share and all this stuff. Wait, no, cooperatives and communes are super popping up in like a cool trendy kind of way. I mean, I got to credit the Europeans on this, but like we were looking into one of them in Bainbridge Island and then it was like, "Mm, it's kind of all a little bit older and white and I don't know. But a couple of my friends are doing it in Oakland and I went to their thing and they're like, this is our private chef and he's making this blah, blah scallops and white wine sauce. I was like, cool, but I'm down. I had a dream that I had joined a organization called the Bruderhof, which is. Wait, wait, in your dream, you made up a name? No, that's a real name. Oh, <laughs> and then? They're, they're an Anabaptist order, which is like the Mennonites 
or the Amish. In this case, they're typically more socially engaged than the Amish, which is a little more withdrawn from society. I had a dream that I joined them. I don't know that much about them, but then I didn't really know what chores I was supposed to be doing. And I still had obligations from McKinsey, which I, I like to work at. And I just realized I, I couldn't do my regular job and all the chores and realized with some sadness <laughs> that I, I, I couldn't be a part of the the community, at least on that kind of intensive basis. And then I woke up. This is Jake's um, subconscious telling him like he actually wants to go back to being a barefooted hippie. Really? Or is it his subconscious saying, I got to do some chores at home? <laughs> or that, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think the commune um, structure makes total sense. It makes total sense. He wanted sense. me to churn the butter, which I don't actually know how to do that. They hadn't really, they weren't that good on like instructions in the so dream. So then you're, and then you're like, you know what? I'm going to start the learning and development segment of this commune. I'm going to make videos and teach everybody how to turn the butter. Well, maybe we can all, even if we're not fully communal, we can live in adjoining townhouses and then make one of the townhouses, the fun house and also hire a chef. Anything's possible. Well, thanks so much for joining our podcast and that's it. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks Thanks, for having me. We hope you found something helpful, reassuring, or interesting in this episode of Model Minority Moms. If you enjoyed the episode, please help us spread the word by texting a friend about our show or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to connect with us, please visit our website at modelminoritymoms.com or follow us on Instagram, where we love receiving messages from our listeners.